Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the AUKUS Amplified, the podcast series brought to you by the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. This is one of seven podcasts highlighting a few of the many outstanding papers presented at the 30th annual meeting of the association, including the award papers of which this is one. My name is Stefano Bini. I am on faculty at UCSF and I'm the chair of the Digital Health and Social Media Committee at AUKUS. I'll be joined as co-host by Dr. Joe Marat, who's also a member of our committee. Joe, welcome. Thanks, Stefano. The title of the paper we're highlighting today is, Is it safe using big heads and small acetabular components in total hip arthroplasty? This paper was brought to us by Courtney Baker and Dr. Robert Trousdale from Mayo Clinic. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. And congratulations because this was the Larry Dorr Surgical Techniques and Technologies Award. This was a monumental achievement, but this year in particular, given that Dr. Dorr passed, it has special meaning. And uh, Rob, I know you know or knew Larry well. Would you like to say a few words about him and the impact this had on your career? Yeah, thanks, Stefano. You know, it's a real honor and pleasure to receive the Larry Dorr Surgical Technique and Technologies Award. These are, as most people know, very competitive awards, and it's a true honor for us at the Mayo Clinic and Courtney Baker, who did the lion's share of the work in this paper to receive this award, and especially special now in light of Larry's uh, passing uh, a few weeks ago. And those of you that knew Larry uh, and almost everyone in the arthroplasty world knows of Larry. He was a giant in the arthroplasty uh, realm, really a figure larger than life. You'd see him with a fedora hat a cigar occasionally, and a great glass of wine if you saw him socially at uh, meetings. And he was a very generous, outgoing character with a rebellowing voice and very strong opinions, which I really liked about Larry. And, he, and if you look back at Larry's achievements, really, he was one of these Renaissance orthopedic surgeons. He was a, a very high volume, competent uh, surgeon. He was an innovator. He was a researcher. He was an educator. And for HKS, he's a very special man. I remember years ago, 30 plus years ago, you know, he was a member of the Hip and Knee Society and a president of both those organizations. And he always said in the late 80s, there should be an organization for surgeons that aren't involved in the hip and knee side. He's a very small group of surgeons. And 30 now plus years ago, he was instrumental in starting AUKUS. And he was a participant regularly in the meeting and a, a true innovator of, in orthopedics. And that lasted till the end of his life. And I had the opportunity of working with Larry uh, on the MAKO uh, uh, Robotic Assisted Total Hip uh, platform uh, years ago with MAKO. And he continued that with the door classification, with a lot of classic articles. And they're really, even within the last 12 months, publishing and commenting on the spine-pelvic relationship, which has become a very hot topic in the realm of orthopedics. So Larry's going to be greatly missed by, uh, I think, all of us in the arthroplasty world for a handful of reasons. And especially for me, I really enjoyed socializing with Larry and his wife, uh, Marilyn, and it's really a tremendous loss for uh, us in the arthroplasty world. Thank you for those words. I, I couldn't agree more. He definitely was somebody I looked up to throughout my residency and training and was very appreciative of being able to get to know him a little bit as I got more involved with the AUKUS. And one other thing I'd like to mention about him, he uh, won the Humanitarian Award, of course, and partly because of his amazing work with Operation Walk, which also worth calling out. He always would mention that would be his legacy, which I think he's going to have a lot of legacies, but he always said Op Walk, and he won the Humanitarian Award from the Academy 
from AUKUS, other organizations. He said Operation Walk would be his legacy. And I disagree a little bit. It's one of his many legacies Larry's going to have. And he's had a huge imprint on uh, generations of surgeons and patients, really. Couldn't agree more. Well, the Larry Dorr Award is intended to highlight innovation in surgery and new techniques within reconstructive surgery. And this is definitely something that what we're about to talk about is something that is relatively new. The use of large diameter heads and very small cups, leaving it behind a very thin shell plastic. And we've had historically challenges with that kind of construct with an unhighly crossing polyethylene that used to crack and wear quickly. So you guys looking at this topic, that definitely fits perfectly in line with the, Dr. Doerr's intent for this award. So turning quickly to Courtney, Courtney, you're the lead author of the paper. Congratulations. Please tell our audience a little bit why you're interested in this topic. What inspired you to do this research work? Absolutely. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you again for having me on this podcast. It's a true honor. And I want to express my thanks to Dr. Doerr. I hadn't had the pleasure of meeting him in person, but it's truly an honor to carry on his legacy in this way. So my interest started my intern year with Dr. Truesdale. We are fortunate here as interns to work with Dr. Truesdale. It's a highlight of our intern year. And oftentimes you'll get a question posed to you about some topic and it goes something like XYZ topic. Hey, is there any data on that? And that's the way Dr. Trusa poses it. And the reflexive answer is yes, but I'm not certain what it is. In this case, we were, and Dr. Trusa will tell you what the data is. In this case, we were on rounds and we had just done some hips like this. We are post-rounding on people with large femoral heads and small acetabular cups. And he posed that question to me and I didn't know what the answer was. And he said, in fact, he was at a meeting over the weekend and he had a, a discussion with another provider about this and, and they agreed there wasn't a lot of data. And so I think the goals of this, I was struck by it initially because there didn't seem to be a lot of data and there seemed to be data for everything else that uh, he asked me about. And so I wanted to follow up on that. And so ultimately we found that this was a clinically relevant question that a lot of people around the country were likely doing this practice, but we didn't have a lot of data to, to guide us. That's sort of where it got started. Terrific. That seems like an excellent place to start asking a question to which there's no obvious answer. And Rob, as a senior author in the paper, how does this topic relate to the rest of your research? You've looked at polyware in the past, and so you must have had an inkling that this might be an irrelevant question. Yeah, so we've done a fair amount of research, as Stefano, on uh, both polyware and young patients, as well as dislocation rates. And we've contributed literature looking at the rates of dislocation, the risk factors for dislocation, some treatment options for dislocation. And almost all the studies we've done here at Mayo have sort of suggest, especially if you look over time, that larger heads seem to have a little smaller dislocation rates than smaller heads, which makes sense. I mean, the jump distance is a little bit bigger, range of motion for prosthetic impingements a little bit uh, little bit greater. And almost all the data suggests that using bigger heads would be beneficial as far as decreasing risk of dislocation. But of course, there's compromise with that with your poly, uh, poly thickness. And with conventional poly, of course, the wear characteristics aren't as good as highly crossing poly, but with highly crossing poly, material characteristics change. So we discussed with Courtney, you know, maybe we should look at our experience. I actually didn't know it was going to be this big, this many patients, but we're sticking thin polys in patients. Are we having problems with rim fractures and spin outs and catastrophic failure, which for years is an endpoint easy to grab. And that's sort of how the project got started. And then Courtney <laughs> picked up the ball and ran hundred yards with it. And scored a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe, let's see if these guys can convert that field goal, the answering your question. So why don't you take them over to the, uh, the meat of the paper? Sure. Yeah. I was really happy to see this paper come across uh, and I'm glad you guys received the award for it. 
I thought it was very interesting and reassuring. It seems like it was very easy for you to do as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about the registry? Courtney, just tell us a little bit about it, how the data is structured in it. And Rob, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how it's evolved over time as well before we get into the paper itself. Certainly. Uh, so we're fortunate here at Mayo to have a living total joint registry that's answered a lot of questions over many decades. And we have a wonderful support staff here that helps us with this. And even as residents doing a lot of legwork, they do even more and they help us out quite a bit. So we're fortunate here at Mayo to have a total joint registry that follows all these patients and they've answered a lot of questions for many decades. And so the question we posed to the registry was to pull all of those acetabular cups that were size 52 or smaller, and we got all those records. And then from those, we cross-referenced them with those that had 36 millimeter femoral heads. And from that, we had a number of patients and sort of striated it a little bit further. And ultimately, that's what created our data set, nearly 900 total hip arthroplasties. Yeah, just Joe, quick comment on the registry. So this turns out, many won't know this, this is the first registry in the world, actually, started in 1969 by Mark Coventry. The first FDA-approved hip was done in the spring of 69 here at Methodist Hospital. And right then, Mark had the foresight to start a registry. Back then, it was just sort of money at the problem. You know, we hired a bunch of people to follow patients. And historically, the registry works where they organize the appointments to follow up at, it was initially sort of two weeks and three months. Now it's at two to three months, two years, five years, and every five years forever. And they do it historically by letter or personal appointment here at the Mayo Clinic. X-rays are sent, we review the X-rays, and we've got a large group of employees that help enter the data. Now we're moving to an electronic version of the registry, and it's really been fruitful for us over the last six decades, really, uh, for us with retrospective uh, studies, of course. And this sort of question leans very nicely to the registry. Yeah, I'm curious, especially in context of this paper, with the need for radiographic analysis at later time periods, how do you end up having follow-up for X-rays, especially with patients that may be traveling to see you from a distance? Yeah, so it's not perfect, as you can see from the follow of the paper, but the registry sends letters to patient with a prescription to get an x-ray. So they send the x-rays to us. We review the x-rays. I do that in between cases every day, review the x-rays. Now it's easier because it's electronic. It used to be films were actually sent. It's electronic now mostly. And then we send correspondence to the patient. Okay. One of the things I read about how you set up the statistics for this paper was a competing risk analysis. Courtney, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so competing risk analysis is a, is a pretty robust way to look at incidences over time. And I think it's often used in the context of elderly populations using death as a competing event. So essentially, like in our case, if we wanted to look at revisions, reoperations, dislocations, and unfortunately, if a patient passes, then your incidence of revision, reoperation, dislocation, et cetera, may be slightly not accurate because of a denominator that's different than what you started with. And so competing risk analysis is a powerful tool to uh, control for that mortality and give you a true incidence over time. So that's a way to decrease bias in the data, correct? That is correct, sir. So going back to your registry, how many patients were you able to identify that had that type of construct? As Dr. Truesdale said, we kind of surprised us all at the number of patients we had. And ultimately, we had 882 primary total hip arthroplasties that used 36 millimeter femoral heads and 52 millimeter cups or smaller size. The vast majority, about 85% of those were 52 millimeter cups with gradually less 50 millimeter and 48 millimeter cups. An important comment, they all had highly crossing poly, right, Courtney? So we excluded anyone that did not have highly cross which we began using in 2000. 
Let's stop there for a second and ask the question, though. Is there much difference, do you think, as we look at the fact that there's multiple types of polyethylene in the mechanical properties of these, of these various polys that should impact the way we think about your results as we listen to them? Does it yeah, so matter can, that there are different polys? That's a great question, Stefano. And majority of the polyethylenes used here were polyethylene that was highly cross-linked with 10 megarad radiation, and the other polyethylene was 5 megarad radiation. So we had a, a pretty diverse group of, uh, and there was a smattering of other highly cross-linked techniques with uh, some different techniques. So the material properties are a little bit different with those two polyethylenes. Despite the fact, Courtney will discuss the inclusions, it doesn't seem to be, make a big difference. We can't comment on big head, small cups with conventional poly, which that question is moot now because no one's right. using conventional polyethylene. The results may be different with that as well. So the plus maybe another strength of this study is the polyethylenes are a little bit different. They are radiated with different amounts of radiation across link them, which of course alters the material properties a little bit differently. Did you attempt to classify the design characteristics of these polyethylenes in terms of the locking mechanisms? Yeah, we did to try to sort out the different types of liners that we used. And in our case, the vast majority were neutral, about 80% or so. And then elevated or phase-changing liner was used in about 15 to 20% of those. And then uh, additionally, we broke down the specific manufacturer and exact types further breakdown in the paper as well. But I think, Joe, it's a very good question. And they are different locking mechanisms. Again, the majority were of two types of socket, neither of which seem to have a problem. And the minimal or thickness is different for each construct. So you can get the thickness at the dome of, the, of all the polyethylene from the companies. It's a little harder to get at the rim where the risk, of course, is, right? So you put a 48 cup in and a 36 head with one of the manufacturers we used, the polyethylene is certainly thinner than most of us would have been comfortable with 10, 15 years ago. There's no question about that. See light shining through it, right? Yeah, right. Yep. What were you able to measure out of the registry? Were you able to measure head penetration? Were you able to measure dislocation rates and other complications? Absolutely. So our main outcomes were complications related to the liner breaking down, so disassociation, fracture, things like that. And uh, additionally, we were looking at dislocation, revision, and reoperation. There's some concern about underrepresenting the nature of uh, liner complications uh, in some large registry trials. But in our case, anytime someone went back to the operating room, whether it was a revision or reoperation, we went specifically to the medical record and reviewed the op notes and were able to determine whether there was a liner at cause. And so we feel pretty good about that. And so those are the main outcomes we are looking at through the registry, liner complications, revision, reoperation, dislocation. And then we had a cohort of patients that we had long-term follow-up for. And in those cases, we were wanting to look at wear rates and radiographic thermal head penetration. And so for people who had over 10 years of follow-up, we compared their most recent films to their shortly after their index operation radiograph and compared the femoral head penetration between the two. And then we used a conversion for the volumetric wear as well. So we had 18 patients that ultimately were able to do long-term wear radiographic analysis. And in those, we found that the mean femoral head penetration rate was 0.042 millimeters per year. And then when you convert that to a volumetric analysis that equates to 44 millimeters per cube per year. And is there a safe threshold of volumetric wear that you'd consider okay? Yeah, so there's critical thresholds that have been shown previously, which is about 0.1 millimeters per year. 
And so we are well below that. And so I think that confirms what we found on radiographic analysis, which was that we saw no evidence of osteolysis on our radiographic review. Yeah, but to, to just to comment, Joe, just to be clear on that, so the linear volumetric wear seemed to be within reason. Volumetric wear a little higher than you'd want theoretically, but I don't think we know a threshold with highly crossing polyethylene. We certainly know with conventional polyethylene, but since the osteolysis rates are so low with highly crossing poly, I think we're going to start seeing that at the third and fourth decade of use. We really don't know for sure. So I think what we can say from this paper in a big picture is the wear rates are acceptable. The biggest outcome measure I think Cordy sort of emphasized is the, what we're really concerned about is fracture and dissociation of polyethylene because we're using such thin bearings and at our follow-up, we didn't see that to be a problem to date. Okay. And just so we can say that clearly, there were no instances where there were polyethylene fractures or dissociations in the entire cohort of patients. And that's really a reoperation, right? I mean, that patient's not going to be lost. That's like a dislocation. That's a hard endpoint. So I think we can be fairly confident that at least at midterm follow-up, we do not have a problem with liner fracture or liner disassociation with these, at least in our hands, with these cup designs. Yeah, that's really valuable to see. Is that generalizable? Does that mean that a thin polyethylene is essentially okay? Is a 40 head and a 54 liner the same as a 36 and a 50? Yeah, so I think it's important to look at where we had the most numbers of pairings. And so I think the vast majority of these were 52 millimeter cups and the 36 millimeter heads, and there was relatively less of the other two combinations. So I think, as you said, it gives you a little more confidence in these pairings. But I think if you had a clear eye look at our data that we have relatively less pairs with the 50 millimeter cups and the 48 millimeter cups. And so we certainly would love to add numbers to that to give you a firmer answer on that. But I think if I look at this data, 52 millimeter cups and 36 millimeter heads seems to do quite well. Yeah, but to go in the weeds a little bit, which is important, if you're a surgeon that's using a different cup design that we didn't include in our series, I don't think we can say for sure that that's safe to do, at least with this data set. And I, we can't certainly comment on 40 heads because we didn't look at 40 heads. And each company's different, right? So a 50 cup with 36 at one company is different thickness poly than because the shells are a little different, different things. The locking mechanism is a little bit different. So I'd be careful a little bit about making this generalizable for designs that we didn't use. Right. The other point to keep in mind when we're looking at linear wear rates, we uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the 0.1 threshold was used with standard poly, which is a very different size wear particle, which has a different osteolytic response. So these smaller particles seem to be actually less osteolytic. So we're half as much wear with less biologically active particles. So it's we're looking pretty good. The other thing about this paper, which is phenomenal, is that this was introduced about 10 years ago. So we're not going to be able to get much more, you know, we have a small number, 18 patients, but that's actually a large number given that's pretty much when this trend started in the first place. We're going to have to wait a little longer to see longer data than that, right? So thanks for taking us through that, Joe. And I'd love to maybe ask Rob to just put this in context for us. We've all been through introducing new technologies and it's so important to track it and make sure that it works well. This large head, small cup concept, how do you feel? I think it's going to stand the test of time. Yeah, I think it's a good question, Stefano. And I think, you know, historically, you look back 15, 20 years ago, there are a lot of surgeons very concerned about using bigger heads and even medium-sized cups. And there are some surgeons now that are still using, for the majority of their hips, 20 millimeter heads and maybe with big cups, 32 millimeter heads. This data has shifted my practice a little bit, uh, I think, especially in the 
high-risk group. So if I've got a low-risk patient for dislocation, say a middle-aged male, good muscles, good spine, no medical problems, and I put a 52 cup, and I'm using a 32 head to maximize poly thickness where he's going to beat up on that with the dislocation rate low. But if I've got a woman who's got a bad spine, she's slender, she's elastic, she's hypermobile, bigger risk for dislocation, I put a 52 cup in, I've now got no concerns about using a 36 millimeter head in that patient. And if the cup's bigger than 58 millimeters, say, and I did that today, I've got little concern, I think, of using a 40 millimeter head in the bigger bigger cup size to glean the benefits of the jump distance and range of motion before prosthetic impingement occurs. That said, Rob, this particular paper would suggest you shouldn't have to worry about putting a 36 head. The 32 head, yes, it will work, but you shouldn't have to worry about it. This data is pretty compelling. It is up to 10 years. Having said that, you put a hip in a 50-year-old male who's got a low dislocation risk, maybe a little thicker poly is advantageous for that, like me, 210-pound <laughs> male sort of thing. So you, you got to balance, I think, poly thickness, long-term durability. And at the low dislocation risk patients, I'm less concerned, but the higher risk. And that's why most of these patients, if you look at our female, that's the uh, yeah, the that, yeah, the surgeons we're concerned about, and those are the ones with smaller cups in general, of of course, versus the, versus the males. But I think, at least with these design sockets, if a surgeon said every 52 cup, I want to put a 36 head in, I think you've now got some uh, some data behind that uh, behind that practice. It's not irrational. Perfect. You also mentioned at the top of the hour, if you will, and recently, just the, the question of dislocation. And this is the reason we went here. Uh, you don't have a comparative group in this case, but we have a lot of historical data. For our audience, did these 36 head decrease at dislocation rate in small cups? Our overall dislocation rate was 3.2%. And so I think that's a competitive rate and probably similar to uh, large registry studies looking at dislocation. I think, as you say, we didn't have a comparative group, so it's hard to say whether these were quote-unquote working or decreasing at incidence. But as Dr. Truesdell said, this uh, retrospective study is looking at a lot of people, and we don't know what the indication was why they went to these pairings. But I am going to presume that these are the higher risk individuals that we went to these cups for that reason, but I don't have firm data to say that. So 3.2% is a reasonable rate, but it's hard to answer that question really tightly. Great. Gentlemen, I think that we've learned a ton from you today. Thank you for sharing your research and your thoughts about how to interpret this data. Joe, thank you for walking us through it. I think we all feel more comfortable than we may have had before using these large diameter heads and small cups. There are often moments where we, we're super glad to have that option because of the ability to provide a more stable construct to our patients. And we look forward to seeing the 20-year data. Maybe Rob will have retired by then. <laughs> but Courtney, you'll be there to tell us what actually happened to these large heads, small cups. I'll be right. to call Dr. Uh, Truesdale out of retirement and we can do another podcast at that time, sir. Oh, yeah. He may be at August. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, again, thank you. And any last words, Rob? Yeah, just a comment maybe on future research and of few overall comments, you know, that one question would be, does this data apply to other designs? I think that's an important question as surgeons using a lot of different de cup designs. How thin is really too thin for a certain cup design? And I think the engineers of these companies have done a pretty good job as light of the low spin-out fracture rate and poly spin-out rate on deciding when they can go up a size and a head. But I don't think we really know how thin is, is too thin. And then maybe the big question in the high-risk patient, which this study doesn't answer, but you got a high-risk patient, female, elastic, bad spine. 
what's the role of a big head versus a dual mobility articulation, which has this whole set, another set of negatives and positives. And this study doesn't, of course, address that, but I think it's a very important question. It may be a well-designed randomized controlled trial in a high-risk dislocation group with dual mobility or big head would help answer that uh, uh, that question, some we may may embark on. But I think there's a lot of other questions I think that aren't answered. But I think 2021, if you're so inclined to use a larger head, meaning 36 head in a, a cup 48, 50 or 52 with certain designs, it's safe to do so. I'd also like to take a moment to thank my co-authors who spent countless hours on this paper along with Dr. Uh, Truesdale and myself. And that's Dr. Brandon Bukowski and Dr. Matthew Abdel here at the Mayo Clinic. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Excellent summary. Appreciate your thoughts on that. Gentlemen, with that, I'd like to close the podcast. Thank you again for participating and invite our audience to listen to all the podcasts in this series. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate advocate and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.